I didn't know there was a video in the program uh, when I came in this morning, so uh, thank you very much. Um, thank you for those of you who are joining us at home this week. Uh, just want to say that we're continuing to work on live stream, and uh, we may be live stream today, uh, but we're definitely continuing to work week by week, and we know some steps we're going to take, and we're really uh, intending to provide a high-quality live stream uh, every week as, as we go along. Uh, also, if uh, you're at home, and, and I'll just remind you who are here, we really do appreciate when you take the time um, to fill out the communication card. You have to go online. It's more complicated than the back in the days when we could just uh, write, write it on a card. We don't provide pens. We're not providing the card, but it is online. You can access from your app, and you can access uh, from our website. So if you don't do it here, you can also do it when you get home. There's a small number of you who are very faithful to tell us uh, that you've connected, and uh, we appreciate it, especially appreciate those uh, who can do this when they're at home as well. Um, so we're continuing our series in First Peter, Hope in Adversity, and today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8, so I want to encourage you to find that passage uh, on your Bible app, or just in case you, you brought an actual Bible, you can do that too as an option. In 1876, a small Methodist church near the ocean in North Carolina was struck by a hurricane and was damaged. It was restored shortly after by the congregation, but again, a second hurricane came through and did the very same thing. It uh, significantly damaged that church building. So... The church family got together again, and they came back, and they worked on it, and they brought that church back to its original condition. Well, by this time, they said, enough is enough. So they searched around and found what they thought would be the ideal location for their church building. And so they went to the landowner and they made a request from him, and they gave him a very generous offer. But the landowner said, no, I'm, I don't want to sell. Well, what happened then? There was another hurricane. And this one uh, damaged the area uh, significantly. And the um, waters were, were so uh, violent and, and the storm was uh, so disruptive that it actually moved the church and washed it away and sent it downstream. And, and the, uh, as it was floating along, the church members threw, actually threw ropes around it and they, and they slowed it down and they were trying to get it to stop. Um, but it, it got away. Uh, their, their efforts were to no avail. And so the they lost their church. But when the waters had receded, the building came to rest, guess where? On that perfect location that they had originally tried to buy. So with that, they, they went back to the landowner, and, and again, they made this very generous offer. And you know what? He said, no, I'm not going to sell this to you, but I will give it to you. He said, 
the Lord definitely wants this church on this lot. And after that, a sign was put in front of this little church building. It said, the house that God moved. The house that God moved. You know what? God is still moving churches. He's still moving his church. And he wants churches to move forward. He wants churches to grow forward. But more importantly than the church building are the people. And he wants his people to grow up and to keep growing forward in their walk with him. And so that brings us to 1 Peter chapter 2, and I want to read that passage uh, to you this morning. I'm going to start and read the first three verses. And Peter writes, uh, this is the first century, around 64 AD. He says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. In verses 1 through 3, uh, Peter wants us to see that we need to pursue obedience to God's Word. How do we do that? Well, there, there are certain things that we need to remove first. Remove the attitudes and actions that offend God. Because you know what? From time to time, there are some parts of our lives, some of our attitudes, some of the things that we do offend the holy nature of God. Now, in, in, in verse 1, he says, therefore, and he goes on to say, rid yourselves of all malice and so forth. And so whenever you see a therefore, you always have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore, you knew I was going to say that, and I want to answer that question by going back uh, to verses 22 and 23 in chapter 1. And um, it goes back to verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Um, they had been set apart for God for the purpose of serving Him. They had been purified. They had been made holy. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, meaning obeying the gospel and coming to faith and trusting in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, love one another deeply from the heart. And then verse 23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So what's the therefore? Therefore, well, you can't uh, pursue your walk with God when we have attitudes and actions that are throwing us off course. Uh, malice. It's, malice is this attitude of ill will toward other people. And I think this is going to especially apply during an election year. When, when, when uh, people desire bad things to happen to certain people. It's, it refers to evil in general. It's being hurtful toward others. It's having destructive motives, negative motives. 
the word deceit, common word for us, covering up the truth, not telling the whole truth, distorting information to put a better spin on our story or a certain bit of information that we want to convey, being deceitful. Thirdly, it's hypocrisy. It's seeking to impress others. It's seeking to have your life look like that it's really better than it is. It's uh, intentionally appearing to have your life together when you don't, one other, wanting others to think you are wiser and perhaps more mature than you really are. Now, we do need to bring our best self, but we need to be transparent in bringing our best self and humbly presenting our best self. And then there's slander, uh, false stories and rumors about others making disparaging remarks about others, which could include government officials and uh, political candidates. And it, uh, it includes words that insinuate defamation of character. So you know what? All of these are the opposite of love. And that's, uh, that's the message that Peter wants, wants us to understand. So we are to remove these attitudes and these actions and these words because they offend the holy character of God. And so you and I just, I just want to remind us all, including me, we just need to be honest with God. And when we, uh, when we slide out of line, we just need to be honest and say, God, I blew it. Would you please forgive me? I had this attitude. I did this. I said this. I know it offended you. And we can ask for forgiveness. And we know we can be, conf we can be conf uh, forgiven. 1 John 1, 9. So we have some things that we need to remove. And this is kind of just a healthy way to approach how you're doing in your day. Is, am I okay with God? Is there anything I need to check off here? Is there anything I need to confront in my own life and take it to God? In verses 2 through 3, uh, we are to pursue nourishment from God's Word. God's Word is described. It describes itself as spiritual food in different places. It's food to feed our souls. Sometimes it's called spiritual milk, spiritual food. Some translations even the meat of the Word. Uh, passages that uh, talk about that are 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13. Peter calls for believers. He calls for us to eagerly pursue spiritual nourishment. We see this in verse 2. And so he says, like newborn babies, just like newborn babies crave spiritual milk. So God wants you to learn something from a newborn baby. I think this is going to be the only thing the kids remember about this sermon. We're supposed to be like newborn babies. Like them, not... You don't have to be a newborn unless you are a newborn. But there is something about them that we can learn from. Just as an infant once spiritual or wants nourishment from mom or from a bottle 
And we get to have mom after mom stand up here and say, well, how does your child react at lunchtime? What do they do? How active do they become? How many body parts are moving until they find what they need? And that's what, that's what God wants us to be like, just like a newborn who gets so excited at the prospect of lunch. Christians should approach God's word with that kind of enthusiasm. Why? So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. This is how you grow. Babies need milk to grow physically. And we need the word of God to grow spiritually. That's how God designed it. God wants us to grow up into maturity, into spiritual adults. Now, when we start out, we, we, we are really infants in Christ. We are babies in Christ, and that's okay. I came to faith at the age of 25, and I was definitely a baby in Christ. I had good intentions. I was pretty dumb and ignorant, but... As I connected with God's word, I began to understand more and more, and I began to grow, and I, I wanted more. And as we cannot grow without this essential part of our life, the word of God. Question for us today. Would you say you are growing in these days, in these times? Are you growing now as a follower of Christ? Are you, are you stuck? Uh, the Apostle Paul brings up in 1 Corinthians 3 that it's possible that some people, they get stunted in their growth and they act more like baby Christians. They don't show maturity. They act so selfish. And he says, you act like mere men. I can't tell you from a non-Christian, Paul writes. And you, you, you don't seem to grow in your understanding about who God is and how he works. And, and he challenges them to growth. So, so that you may grow up in your salvation because, verse 3, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so he uses this imagery again about taste have you tasted that the Lord is good? What is he saying? saying? Have you experienced for yourself? Do you know firsthand, personally, that the Lord is good? Remembering on who he is and what he's done for you, that he sent his one and only son, that he would bring salvation to you as a gift that you don't deserve and that you cannot earn and you can't keep it in your strength. It's kept by his power. It's a gift. He, he died for you and he gave you resources. Have, and have you experienced that? He is good. Now, our circumstances aren't always good, are they? He is good. Makes a big difference if we start um, evaluating our God about our circumstances and how we think he should behave toward us. So we're to, be, we're to crave spiritual milk, we're to grow up in our salvation because the Lord is good. Um, in Psalm 119, uh, 
David deals with the question, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? Remember earlier, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, um, it, because we have purified, we've been purified by, by the gift that we've been given. We've been set apart for God. That's what we are to pursue this. Uh, earlier, Peter said, be holy because your heavenly father is holy. How do we do this? How do we do this? Well, David writes in Psalm 119, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? It's hard. But the answer is by living according to your word. David was learning that. And as he learned it, he was growing in his relationship with God by paying attention to God's word, by obedience, by learning to practice what God says. When God gives instructions, do we follow step by step? That's how we pursue purity. If we're disconnected from the word and we have, we, you know, let me just say, if you just, your exposure to the word is just once a week, I'll tell you what, it's not going to be enough. It is not going to get you through the week. It's just, it's like feeding a couple of tablespoons, teaspoons, or baby spoons to a baby. Um, it's just not enough. You're going to grow a little bit. You're liable to be in that infancy stage a long time. In Psalm uh, 19, again, it's David, and he reminds us of this. Look what David says. He says, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord, and now he's talking about the word of God, the instructions of God's word. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. And notice this. They are more precious than gold. Uh, today, the price of gold is $1,886 an ounce. And God's word is more precious than that, okay? Way more precious than that. They are sweeter than honey. Honey tastes sweet. Honey was probably one of the most significant things that people could enjoy that had a sweetness to it. And David is saying God's word is sweet to the soul. It's sweet. And I want more of it. And then verse 11, he says, By them your servant is warned. God's servant, David, is warned by God's word. When he gets off the path, uh, when he's facing temptation, when he's tempted to, to, to go offline and to do his own thing and to be selfish, um, God's word brings clarity to the path you're taking, warns us if we're slipping off the path, if we're taking the wrong course of action, if we have a wrong motive, God's word warns us. It warns me about my speech and my thought life. It is good. And then he says, in keeping them, there is great reward. Following God's word in obedience brings great reward. 
Living out my faith in practice brings great reward. And what Peter's talking about here is someday we're going to meet Jesus face to face. Someday he'll come again. Someday he's going to appear and our salvation will be made complete, but it's not yet. And when he comes, he will bring great reward. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to face him, and you can count on that. So Peter would say, pursue obedience to God's word. Secondly, in verses 4 through 8, understand what God is doing in his church. Understand what God is doing in his church. And let's, let's just read that so you can see it in one section. Beginning at verse 4, Peter writes, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. So let's walk this through. Understand what God is doing in his church. If we're going to grow up into maturity, we need to understand the big picture. And sometimes we forget how we fit into this picture and this plan that God has for his church. In verses 4 and 5, we see that God is building a spiritual house for worship. You know, there are many metaphors in the New Testament that are used for the church. Um, for example, there's the vine and the branches. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And Ephesians 5 talks about Christ being the groom and the church being the bride of Christ. And then there's the great shepherd who is the shepherd of the sheep, and there are others. But here is another in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone. Now, you know, for us, without much context, these, these, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. How can anybody be a living stone? But Jesus is described as a living stone. And Peter says, as we come to him, as we come to him for salvation, when we placed our faith in Christ, we, we came to him and he is the living stone. But this is a continual action. And it's not only our salvation, but we come to him on a, on a continual, regular, daily basis. We come back to him because we need him. And he's provided resources so that we can follow him day by day. Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen and precious to him. Jesus was rejected. Remember that? I know you do. It was the religious leaders. 
It was the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the other priests in the first century. They rejected Jesus. There's a whole lot of other people out there as well that rejected Jesus. It didn't make sense to them. They didn't get it. They had their own categories on how God should do it. They didn't like their circumstances. They hated the Romans. And they had another idea on how a Savior should take care of this. They didn't get that Jesus would die on the cross. It just seemed like Jesus was cursed. It was pretty clear to them. They rejected him. They made fun of him. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is still rejected today and that people aren't interested in the same spiritual values that we may have. We shouldn't be surprised. This is not new. But God hasn't changed. His role for the church hasn't changed. And then in verse 5, um, uh, back to verse 4, he was, Jesus was chosen by God and precious to him. Jesus is precious to God. It's important. And then, he, and then he brings it to us. You also, talking to this first century audience, but applies directly to us, like living stones. And that's, you know, what, you're a living stone. How do you feel about that? It's, a, it's an unusual imagery for us. But like living stones, but if we see the purpose here, are being built to a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So here's another simile. We, we were to be like newborn babes. Now we're like living stones. And we are being built into a spiritual house. That's what God is doing right now. God is building his church. He's building a spiritual house. We are living stones. And we have a living hope. And we have the living word of God. And we also have the living stone, Jesus Christ. So what else can we learn about this spiritual house? Well, Jesus had words for us that you may be aware of. Matthew 16, verse 18 Jesus said, I tell that, and he's talking to Peter, and, and the rest of the disciples are around him, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, the confession of your faith, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Interesting thing, this is the first time that the word church is used in the New Testament, way before it ever existed. Nobody had an idea that, and Paul said it's a mystery, this whole thing about the church um, who, who would have Jew and Gentile and there would be no race distinction. This new community, this new entity. And Jesus says, on this confession that you have given, Peter, that Jesus is the Messiah, I will build my church. Now, this is a great comfort to me. Jesus said, he's going to do it. He is building his church. The cool thing is, and Henry Blackaby made this, uh, this idea, phrase possible back when he wrote Experiencing God. 
And, and, and the cool thing is we get to join him in what he's doing. We get to join him in his work. Jesus is building his church. Also notice it's his church, not my church. I'm not building my church. You're not building your church. And it's okay to say that you have a church or to say, this is the one I belong to. But we just need to remember that the church belongs to Jesus. And that's a great comfort. I don't have to worry about it night and day. The church belongs to Jesus. It's his church. In fact, he purchased his church with his blood. He was our redemption. He paid the price. And we're, and, and we're not. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him. And then uh, verse 21, uh, excuse me, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. And Paul writes these words, he says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. So he's talking about the change in identity for the church in Ephesus. This is in the first century. There's been a change. This is who they were. They were disconnected from God's people. They were not a part of God's people before. Um, but now you are fellow citizens with God's people. Now you are citizens of heaven. Now you are truly a part of God's people. And you're also members of his household. Now you belong to God's family. Now you are children of God. Now you are sons and daughters of God. Now you have a spiritual nature. You have been born again. You have been given this spiritual connection with God. You've been born again. Verse 20, built, there's this building idea, this structure built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles came first. The prophets came first. They uh, spread the gospel in the Mediterranean world. They laid our foundation. It's one of the reasons why I don't think we ever need that same foundation again. We don't have these roles again because the foundation has been laid with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. We can't relay the cornerstone. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. And you know that the cornerstone in, was, uh, in, in these days was the most valuable stone in the structure. It was so carefully designed and crafted and that Every angle of the building would come out of that angle. Now, I know that from uh, ancient times, you know, in, in studying the cornerstones, and I haven't studied the cornerstones, but an ancient cornerstone that was discovered, an amazing find, 69 feet long, 12 feet wide, and 13 feet high. And the whole building was built on that cornerstone. The cornerstone was valuable. Um, and then verse 21, In him the whole body is joined together and, and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. This is a new spiritual house that Peter is describing. It's being built into a holy temple of God. It is the church. 
Now think about this, living stones. There's, there's Jesus, the cornerstone. There's the apostles and the prophets, the foundation. And then in Acts 2, there were living stones, about 3,000 added on that first day. And Jesus has been building this temple structure, this building with living stones, one life at a time. And you are in that building. As far as I know, Jesus isn't done yet. And he's still building his church. And he's adding one person at a time. And he's called us to join him in what he is doing. Verses 4 and 5, God is creating a spiritual community. This is similar to the previous point that focused on the structure, a spiritual house. This focuses on a spiritual community. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, this is what we just saw, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Holy means to be set apart for God for the purpose of serving him. The priesthood, and we're going back to the Old Testament picture of a, a priest. Um, and this is kind of foreign to us. Some of you have backgrounds that have priests or priesthood in them, but they're not exactly like Peter refers to here. A priest in the Old Testament was a mediator between God and man and man and God. A priest was to represent God to man. You could do that through teaching and man to God. You, and you did that often at the temple with sacrifices. There were animal sacrifices. Um, there were um, offerings of, of different foods um, at the temple. And it had to be at the temple. And God has made his church. All who are Christ followers, and that includes you if you're a Christ follower, God has made his church to be a holy priesthood, mediators, go-betweens, between man and God and God and man. And so we are to go to people who don't know him yet, and we can take their names before the throne of grace. That's why we're here. John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, uh, Jesus had an encounter at the woman at the well, and and he gives us a big clue here. He says to, to the woman, this is first century, yet a time is coming and it's now come. It's, it's happening right now. There's going to be a big change. There's going to be a change from the old covenant to the new covenant. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. God is seeking worshipers right now. He was in the first century. He is still seeking worshipers. He found me in 1974. It changed everything. I hope it's changed your life too. And he is still seeking people to connect, to be added to his church, and to become worshipers, true worshipers in the spirit, having a true spiritual connection in the power of the Holy Spirit, impossible for an unbeliever. They can go through the motions, they can belong to a church, but without the Holy Spirit, they are not worshiping in spirit. And in truth, 
according to God's instructions about worship, not just what we dream up or what we like or what we think our preferences should be. Churches are dangerous when they start following all of their human desires about how to do church. They're dangerous in the sense that they go off course and become ineffective. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, we see the kind of spiritual sacrifices that God is looking for. And the writer of Hebrews says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. If our hearts are right and we sing praise to God, just like we did today, when we recognize who he is and what he's done, and when we, when we give him praise and when we show our appreciation, that's true worship. And God is offer, honored and we are offering a spiritual sacrifice to God and it's well-pleasing to him. And, and, and when we, when we sh share thanksgiving, when we acknowledge what God has done in our lives, how he's provided, how he's cared for us, how he's been faithful to us, that's offering a sacrifice to God. Verse 16, and do not forget to do good, to share with others for such sacrifice God is pleased with. Doing good, serving others, serving your church family, encouraging people, providing a meal, taking a meal to someone, doing good, shoveling your neighbor's sidewalk, doing good, helping someone move, helping someone repair their lawnmower, helping out with groceries, giving someone a backpack, buying toilet paper and diapers for people in St. Paul, helping out at the local food bank, volunteering at Apple Crisis Pregnancy Center, just ways of doing good. And those are sacrifices that we make that are pleasing to God. Let me read one more um, from Philippians chapter 4. I had it on my original outline and I forgot to put it on my final outline. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 18. The apostle Paul writes, For I receive full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply su supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So Paul had a need and he asked the church for financial help and they responded and they gave generously to, to advance the gospel. And here's what Paul says about their financial gifts to God. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. When you give back to God, it's one of those acts of worship. It's an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And now we come to a more personal passage. It's Romans 12.1. The apostle says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, when you think back about God's mercy, can you think back about what God has done for you, that he sent his one and only son, that his son gave his life in your behalf. He gave, gave his all for you. In view of that, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is an acceptable sacrifice. This may be the most costly to you. It's about yielding your life to God 
He is Lord. We are servants. In fact, you can't call Jesus Lord if you aren't yielded to him as his servant. And servants do what their master calls for. They, they don't create their own little path apart from their master. So this is how God designed the spiritual life, with these spiritual sacrifices. This is how God has designed his church for us to worship and to live. And this is how we grow up spiritually. Verses 6 through 8, the final section, God offers all people a choice about his son. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now Peter is quoting Isaiah 28, verse 16. This is back in the 8th century before Jesus, so this is a prophetic um, quote here. And it's about Jesus. Zion refers to Jerusalem. God planned to lay a cornerstone for a new spiritual house. The temple in Jerusalem was corrupt, and God had a plan way back then that he was going to replace it with a new spiritual house. The cornerstone would be a person, because whoever trusts in him is a person. Those, uh, they'll never be put to shame because of their sin. Verse 7, now you, to you who believe, this stone is precious. And Paul speaks to his audience, to, to those who believe. I hope he's precious to you as well. He says, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is a crazy idea. It's ironic. The stone the builders rejected because the religious leaders and the people in the first century said, crucify, crucify. They rejected God's son. They re and this Jesus, who was the cornerstone for this new community, this new spiritual structure, this Jesus, the cornerstone, tripped up a whole lot of people. All those religious leaders tripped up over him. They missed it. They didn't get it. That's, Psalm, that's a quote from Psalm 118 and verse 22. Then we come to verse 8. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. That's Isaiah 8, 14. The cornerstone was not precious to all people. It was actually a stumbling block. The best part, Jesus. People tripped over and they, they would fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, the message of the gospel, God's message that Christ died for their sins, that he paid it all, that there's nothing they could do to deserve or to earn it. It wasn't about being a religious nut. It was about receiving the gift that God had offered them. They stumble because they do not believe what God has said about his son. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Just as the sovereign God draws people to salvation, there are some people who don't want him. They are destined for judgment. Uh, but God offers all people this opportunity, this choice. He, he's created people with a free will. Yes, he is sovereign. Yes, he is at work. And I wish you would read the Old Testament 
especially through the prophets, to see how God has worked in the past. God offers all people a choice. He wants all people to repent, that is to turn to Christ. And they have that opportunity until their dying breath. The offer is real and it is valid. We have this message given to us in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, that's the offer. It's to anyone. It's for all people. It's not for special people. It's not for Americans. For just Americans. It's for all people. It always has been. And God gave his son. He loved us so much. And it's very simple. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. They won't be condemned. They won't go to hell. They won't have an eternity without Christ. They will have eternal life. They will be born again. They will become citizens of heaven. They will be a child of God. They will receive the Holy Spirit to become their resource and to guide them and to help them and to give them strength to walk with him one day at a time. But the passages that are often overlooked are the following verses. John chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not his purpose. That's not why he did it in the first century. But to save the world, that offer to us today. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's really, really good news. We call it the gospel. Last slide there. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Who are the people in your world who have not believed in Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son? Who are the people that need to hear about this? You are the go-between. They can't just figure this out by themselves. That's why God has put us here. Sharing Jesus is a way that we do good to other people, which is an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That's why we need to understand God's big picture. That's why we need to understand what God is doing in his church and what he wants us to be doing as he is building his church, and he wants us to join him in all that he is doing. As we close this morning, I, I want to invite us all to stand. Would you stand up with me? Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. This is how I'd like to close. This is an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. Would you read it with me out loud? Okay? Read it with me. Here we go. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let's pray together. As we stand before God, 
Maybe this is just a part of your regular walk with God, but this is a, a great time to yield your life back to God, just to remember and to be reminded and to remind God to offer up yourself. Jesus gave his total life. Will you offer him your total life? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Present all that you are to him. You don't have to be embarrassed. He already knows everything there is about your body. Offer your heart, offer your mind. God wants to use you. God wants you to be his servant. He's building his church one life at a time. And he has included us in all that he wants to do. Lord, may we be your instruments as you continue to build your church. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.